welcome to the Blue Mountain Center podcast. This is Zohar. And this is Luke. Uh, so Luke, what's new at BMC this week? Well, I think that the thing that most people are talking about who are passing through here is that I recently, with the help of Ben Strader, installed a pull-up bar uh, in the boathouse. You installed a pull-up bar? Yes. A bar, a metal bar that sticks out of two, that is, you know, bolted into the studs in the uh-huh. wall. For the and listeners right now, Luke is, he's like making bolts with his fingers yeah. in the air to yeah. demonstrate to me what a pull-up bar looks like. I still haven't figured out. What format is this in? Is this audio? This is audio. Oh, So okay. people can't see oh, you pointing gosh. your little fingers. Oh, man. Um, and they won't, and they won't be able to see my humongous muscles. Oh yeah. So you installed this pull up bar. Is it because you want to get ripped this summer? I mean, it's never, it's always a bit unseemly to admit that you're trying to get ripped. Mm -hmm. So I'll just, can you just tell me what exactly it means to get ripped? Getting ripped the way I understand Mm it is you, your muscles are no longer able to be contained by normal dress shirts you know okay so that's the etymology of the word ripped is it's because you're ripping your shirts open yes (laughs) every time you flex your muscles that's how you know if you're you're ripped if your clothing is constantly breaking or ripping in some way now if i recall there's also something that goes on with your shoulders uh being like uh, oh, you can ski down oh, when, ski slopes. If if, <laughs> if someone is able to snowboard down your traps, uh-huh. the muscle that kind of goes from your shoulder sort of up to your neck uh-huh. when you have a nice big triangle uh-huh. there, then you know that you're, that you're ripped. Also, oh, okay. so that's it's an snowboard, alter- not ski. Uh, skiing is yeah, snowboard pr- preferably. Snowboard down your traps. Yeah, that's how you know you're ripped. Yes. Okay. Should I get ripped this summer? I, everyone can get ripped. I, I don't see why anyone wouldn't want to get ripped. Mm-hmm. If there's a pull-up bar, I mean, I mean, and then we have a lot of the old, you know, classic equipment that we've always had at Blue Mountain Center, such as um, several uh, rusty dumbbells, mm-hmm. um, a, a, a perfectly good boxing bag, right? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Um, we oh, have we a- have a tiny treadmill. We have a treadmill? Nope. <laughs> Trampoline. <laughs> Tread... <laughs> <laughs> we're exposing ourselves as non-fitness gurus um we have a floor from which someone could push up from that floor Ooh. to strengthen um, their pectoral muscles mm-hmm. okay um, so you heard it here first folks yeah luke and i are getting ripped this summer and we'll keep you updated yes uh so luke who did you talk to this week this week i talked to the Kristen kimball uh, she is the author of The Dirty Life, uh, a memoir of farming, food, and love. And she's also the co-owner and co-founder of Essex Farm in Essex, New York. Tell me a little bit more about Essex Farm. Essex Farm, which Zohar and I have both visited, so she's being a bit... What is the word? I Disingenuous? No. I yeah, know. you're being... You <laughs> lied to me just now. Um, I know all about Essex Farms, <laughs> but this is this is how you make radio. Yes, yeah, we're to making it a little bit radio. Uh, Essex Farm is a farm up in Essex, New York, as I already mentioned, mm-hmm. where they provide a whole diet for families. So mm-hmm. you you sign up, you pay them a fee, and for the season they're a co-op, you know, and you but you get all the food you want that they can that they can give you, mm-hmm. basically. 
Um, so, which is kind of interesting. You know, we're talking meat, we're talking dairy, we're talking delicious eggs. Uh, what else are we talking? Vegetables, mm -hmm. fruit. Am I missing anything? Maple syrup. Maple syrup. That's its own food group. Mm -hmm. I heard they're making cheese. Cheese. Occasionally. Okay. I guess that was covered by dairy. Mm, yeah, that mm -hmm. is included in the whole. Yeah. Um, and it's all very good. And they're very friendly people. Very mm -hmm. funny people. Mm -hmm. Whenever we go there, it's a lot of, a lot of laughs. Um, and we love them. And, and she was so nice to come in and talk to me, of all people. And how so, was the convo? It was a great convo. Mm -hmm. um, we covered a lot of... We talked about how she got into farming, how she left her life in New York and came to farm. We talked about the ins and outs of running a farm. We talked about trying to be a writer while you're also trying to be a farmer. Farming is very exhausting work. Um, I definitely couldn't hack it. That was one thing I came away from reading this book. Um, so it's a really good conversation, and I... That's it. That's all I have to say. That's good. Um, so we're just going to start. All right, great. And I guess the first thing I wanted to ask was just, um, what comes first, uh, writing or farming, or do you feel like that's not a fair... The third element of my world is... Um, family and kids. And because our children are still so little, they really do have to come first and their needs come first and their needs are always unpredictable. Um, beyond that, I have to have very um, um, specific dedicated time for writing or else the farm will eat every bit of time that I have available. Yeah. Um, the farm will tend to throw emergencies at you that you can't help but attend to. You know, the cows get out or, you know, the day I was coming here, the calves had broken down a fence and torn down like three other fences on their way up the road. So you can't ignore that stuff. Yeah. But um, I try really hard to get out of that chaos and make sure that I have at least a couple hours every day um, to write. And then whenever you can get it or is it always at the same time um i try to get i have a little cabin on the farm and i try to get to the cabin um as soon as i can in the morning which usually means after the kids are off to school um mm -hmm. and the cows are in the barn for milking for the record i've seen the cabin <laughs> and it is a cabin that's probably the only way i'd be able to describe it's not insulated do you have electricity or no no there's no <laughs> electricity in it there's a beautiful little wood stove and yeah. um it was built by one of our first employees um and he lived in it for a year mm -hmm. we've had farmers in there on and off but right now it's um it's mine <laughs> i love it and i get to bring my dog with me in the morning so oh good it's not totally it the lonely. same dog that you bought in the, that Mark gave you as a gift in the book? This is her daughter. This uh, is his daughter. That dog was Jet, yeah. who's now um, 10 years old mm -hmm. and looking like a very hefty old man. <laughs> I say he's like Marlon Brando in his Tahiti phase now. He's sort of just like given up and he's very large and he lies around a lot and enjoys himself. Um, but we have his daughter, Mary, who's almost two now and she's sort of my little shadow. Mm. I love that moment in the book when, not when you first see the farm and you're kind of like, oh my God, it's great and also terrifying, but when you come back to the farm to really do it and you arrive, and as I recall in the book, you you kind of um, remember, it's like, it's like you, you had, while you were gone in your imagination, you'd kind of made it almost better than it seemed. And so then when you came back, you were kind of hit with the reality of like, oh my gosh, we have a lot of work to do. Um, what, uh, can you, 
But yeah, can you talk a little bit about what that was like? I mean, we all do that, right? I mean, we do that when on anything. I often do it. um, I don't know um, when I'm, you know, working on something around the house, and you leave it, and you think it's in one place, and you come back, and you're like, it's totally not what I was hoping it was going to be. I think with the farm, uh, you know, Mark and I were in a fairly new relationship, and this was a huge leap for us. And um, and we were um, really eager to dig our hands into something, but we had that really blessed ignorance of what that something was going to be, um, which is what made it all possible. You know, mm-hmm. if we had known at that moment how hard the next 18 months, the next two years was going to be, I'm not sure we would have done it. Um, yeah. But you dig into a project and then your heart's with it and you don't, you can't leave it at that point. And what was cool, I mean, it's uh, of course an incredible amount of work, especially to get it up and running, but it was cool how throughout the book, all sorts of different neighbors kind of pop, would pop in and give you this, or, Hey, did you think of it this way? Both kind of like on the ground, on, in the fields work and also like dropping off a tool that you might need or a, um, what, I mean, is that, are they still very much apart? Like pe- those kind of char- peripheral, peripheral characters still like in the mix? Totally. And our farm could never exist in the way that it exists without our community and the people around us who help. Um, but one thing is changing and I've been thinking about it a lot as I work on this new book. Um, when we first started, when I was working the horses in the field, not infrequently, a car would pull over and some old man that we didn't know would come out and he would just stare at the horses for a while. And sometimes, you know, he would walk across the field and he just wanted to put his hands on the horses. Mm. And he would always tell stories about um, the horses that he had known as a boy or the horses that his father had. Um, And the same thing with our neighbors. We had two really wonderful Um, men in the neighborhood who had grown up working horses and they were this bridge that we had between us and the time that came before us and those men are gone now like those guys Mm -hmm. don't stop anymore in the last 10 years you know those cars don't pull over anymore um and of the two men in our neighborhood one of them passed away and one of them is is really not quite able to get around anymore Mm -hmm. so that link is gone and i feel really lucky that i got to have that while yeah. it was still alive and not only alive in the world, but alive in our place in the world. Yeah. And I'd say that all it was cool to kind of see that that old world wisdom was kind of passed along to you in, in that, in, in the book. But I'd say another source of wisdom in the book, dare I say is Mark. And I, I love, there's this one passage where it seems like in the book, at least, and I'm wondering if this is still true you kind of say that you were the one who was worrying more about financial kind of stuff. And that was your big kind of fear. Like, will we run out of money? We'll be, will and then Mark's worry was a little bit more like, I just want to be able to farm as much as possible and have freedom to farm. And, um, yeah. What, I mean, is that, uh, is that, um, is that are those still the kind of two kind of camps that you guys are in, or is it more overlapping now? I think the camps have shifted a little bit. Well, they're probably still on the same shores that we were on back then. Yeah. Um, I think uh, our farm has grown into a much bigger business than it was 
in the beginning. So now instead of worrying about, you know, $100, we worry about $10,000 expenses. Um, and so Mark's had to get um, a bit more professional about the way that he deals with finances on the farm. I think um, he used to really worry about about the pressure of labor and um, working too hard, making farming no longer enjoyable for him. And I think I think he's had to let go a little bit of that desire to really work in the earth every day. He does a lot more management now than he used to. But I think the primary concern is trying to figure out a way to farm that doesn't compromise our um, the ideals that we started out with. You know, how do we balance the financial responsibility of the farm with um, being um, environmental and, and socially responsible? Um, and that's a constant challenge and a constant balancing act. Is the North Star still, like, no fossil fuels? Is that still the long-term goal? Have you had to make concessions that you didn't expect to have to make along the way as you kind of grew exponentially? Well, yes. I would say that the, you know, the primary thing that we have our eyeballs on still is trying to create a farm that um, is energy and carbon positive, right? That produces more energy than it expends and that sequesters more carbon than it releases. And those are surprisingly complex and difficult challenges when you're also trying to balance, um, you know, to keep the balance sheet economically above zero and to um, make the farm a place that's um, good for the community and good for the people that that work on it. Um, But yeah, that's still our goal. And um, it becomes more interesting, if not closer to reality every year Mm. um we have a 25 kilowatt solar array in our field now and it looks like this year we're going to add another 50 kilowatts of solar power which will be awesome that'll get us you know to balance as far as the electricity we use on the farm Mm -hmm. um we've moved from two horses in the beginning of the first book to eight draft horses now um and they work pretty steadily all summer long um, we still use tractors on the farm. Sometimes I forget to mention that, but uh-huh. <laughs> um, we have and use and use tractors really quite regularly in um, on the farm. Mm-hmm. And we'd like to eventually switch over to biodiesel or electric tractors or some way to sort of reduce our um, diesel usage. Mm-hmm. And I circling kind of back when I started to talk about Mark's wisdom, what he says in the book now I remember is that success like you shouldn't measure success or you should measure success just by the fact that you're doing hard things is that still kind of a guiding principle yeah Yeah. Uh, i love that you remember that yeah Yeah. i mean that's mark's personality and that's sort of the joy and the difficulty of being married to him is that he truly thrives on doing difficult things that he considers beautiful Mm um and um it's kind of uh you know, if you're going to love Mark, you have to also love that. <laughs> <laughs> Said, like, you really know that. Yes, that's true. Um, and kind of along the lines of working with Mark, like, he, uh, you, you talk, you say at one point, I think, that you just sort of divided the farm down the middle and said, okay, you take this half, you take this half, because you were really kind of butting heads a little bit, which was funny, because you had just gotten into the game, basically, and I guess you already had learned enough to be able to, like, know, like, to be able to do that. Um, is that, I mean, now I'd imagine that things are more complex and there's more of it. What is the division 
kind of like what are your daily responsibilities as, as yeah, a farmer? Yeah, I've thought about this question a lot lately. Um, in the beginning, we divided it animals versus plants. Um, I always loved the working with the animals. He had really great skill and training in plants. So I was primarily responsible for the animals. He was primarily responsible for the plants and we could sort of negotiate from there. Um, as the years have gone on and, you know, we have two kids, um, I have a lot fewer responsibilities directly, um, on the farm. I still co own and co-manage it with him, but he's responsible for the daily day-to-day management, um, we have anywhere from eight to 15 employees, depending on what time of year it is. So um, I'm not as needed anymore in the sort of physical day-to-day work. Um, but the reason I've been thinking about it a lot lately is that, um, you know, now we've been in it 12 years now, and a lot of the people who've worked for us have started their own farms. Yeah. Um, and I find myself in the position of being the next, the older generation to these younger farmers who mm-hmm. are creating couples and creating farms yeah. sometimes simultaneously. And I had a really interesting talk, um, with two of my women, younger women, farmer friends recently, um, about the difficulty of figuring out how to share a vision and how to share decision-making on a farm. I think a lot of women, um, come in, after their partner has started the farm and then really struggle to figure out like what their role is and what mm. their um, what their ownership is, especially in the early days of a relationship before yeah. you really figure out those power balances. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel really lucky that Mark and I started the farm together, that, you know, it was a shared vision from the beginning yeah. and that I have always felt um, a true ownership for um, for the for the creation of it and for you know, what it is. I was, I'll tell you, I was just listening to the NPR interview and they ask you pretty much that question. They're kind of like, Hey, at the beginning, did you ever feel like you were kind of hitched to Mark's wagon and you had no control and you were, you kind of paused for a second and you're like, no, not really. Actually. I felt kind of like it was my idea from the, or not my idea, but just like I was in control also from the beginning. Uh, is that, so is that something that you help these women that you're working with kind of just be like, Hey, you just dive in from the beginning and like, feel like it's, and you are entitled to have these opinions and take control. Yeah. And I also encourage women, um, to gain the skills that they need in order to feel real partnership. Um, you know, if you feel left out because you don't know how to fix small engines, you got to go learn how to fix small engines. If you feel left out because you can't use the forge time to go get some skills on the forge. Um, I also think it's fine to select your your piece of the empire and specialize. Right now, my specialty is sheep. And, um, you know, I don't do much in the dairy barn. Um, I offer a lot of advice on in the other enterprises, but I'm really hands-on with the sheep. And I really like being sort of in control and on top of that one piece of the farm. Are sheep dumb? No. <laughs> sheep are sheepish. Uh-huh. So they um, people think they're dumb because they have really specific instincts, right? They're like, they're the ultimate prey animal. Everything in the world wants to eat a sheep. So their defense mm. against that is to be really strongly bonded to each other. So they have this tremendous flocking instinct. So they'll follow the flock anywhere. And people take that as a form of um, 
of lack of intelligence, and it's really not. It's just that right, they, right. you know, that's their defense against the fact that the world wants to eat them. Right. <laughs> you say in the book that you're reading a lot of books about animal husbandry, which I guess is just animals, right? How to care for animals and help them. Have you gone through phases of, like you said, now your passion is sheep? Has it been other ones before that? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. The sheep one uh, has been pretty consistent for the last couple of years. But um, I also got pretty obsessed this year with, um, with farrowing, how to increase the survivability of piglets, um, because we had pretty unacceptable levels of death in our young pigs. Um, so we did a lot of work this year to try to fix um the farrowing barn where the sows give birth and make it easier for the piglets to survive and it, it actually worked but that was a bunch of research too which i enjoy i know we've talked a little bit about this before maybe even a little bit last night but i think it's just a, such an interesting topic um dealing with animals dying all the time you're you're around them you develop relationships with a lot of them the ones that you have i guess that aren't being slaughtered you name how does how does the naming thing work and then also like, how do you not become a ta How do you learn to deal with the tremendous amount of death that is happening all the time at Essex Farm? Um, yeah, when we were talking last night, I think we were talking about the difference between sentimentality and love or something like that. Mm -hmm. You can't be sentimental on a farm because the health of the whole farm has to trump the well-being of every individual piece of the farm, right? So... Um, you know, you have to budget for everything that you do, whether it's money or time. A great example is, um, let's see, it must have been early last winter. One of our sows farrowed, and um, there was a little piglet that was clearly not going to survive. Um, and no sane farmer would take on the job of raising a, a piglet like that by hand because it just takes far more time and effort than it would ever be worth. But I happened to have the time at that time of year. And so the kids and I, you know, raised this piglet and fed it with an eyedropper and then fed it with a, you know, a bottle and it, it lived and it thrived. And his name is Pancake because the girls <laughs> named him Pancake because he was flat like a pancake when we found him. Oh. Um, and Pancake is now this, I don't know, he probably weighs 200 pounds and he's in with the other pigs. It must have just been this past winter because he's not grown yet. Um, but anyway, you know, we we loved Pancake and we love him and we care about him, but we also have no qualms or second thoughts about about the fact that he's going to be food, that we're going to eat him. Um, and I think as people have sort of grown farther from agriculture and closer to pets, that idea of being able to both love something and eat it has become really hard for people to understand because they don't experience it. Yeah. And it's sort of like rule number one of being a farmer. It is mm -hmm. not only possible, but kind of necessary to both love and eat the animals that we raise. Yeah. And there's always a sense of um, hesitation or loss, I think, when it's slaughter time and you have to take the life of this thing that doesn't particularly, you know, that would much pr prefer to be alive. Um, but it's sort of in service to the whole, which, and the beauty of that whole, to me, trumps the difficulty of that loss. And, and you, I, I'm, I'm curious now about 
those Fridays when members come to pick up their stuff and the relationships that you build with the people who are coming to your, to the place. And from what I understand, it's kind of a hangout time. I was there. I've, I've seen it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, like, regarding, and you, you and your husband are both very sort of blunt about, hey, oh, we had to shoot this one in the face, you know, or, and that kind of, and I'm, not the members, not the members. You don't, <laughs> they, you don't shoot any members. No, they're the safe. Um, how do how does how do they take that? How do they take that straight talk? How does that well, go? I think it's sort of similar to what I was just saying. You know, they're closer to agriculture than um, because they've been mem- most of them have been members. You know, for many years now, yeah. um, they've come closer to it. So I think it's it's much easier for them to understand. Um, they want to know that their animals are being treated well, and that mm. you know they're. Um, they have the best lives possible and that they have um, good and humane deaths. And we're really proud of that part of our farm because we slaughter all of our animals on farm, which means we don't have to truck them anywhere. They don't have that fear before they die that they're in some, you know, unfamiliar place. They're generally in a field and then they're dead. Um, So, you know, they, I think it's Temple Grandin who says that for humans, it's pain. That's sort of the physical pain. That's the worst thing. And for animals, it's more fear. And there's nothing as fearful for an animal as being in unfamiliar surroundings. Um, So I think our members understand that on a level that's more like a farmer than it is, you know, a non-farmer. In the book, in the epilogue, I think you say, yeah, and now we have 100 members. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I look online and it's like, I find, you know, and then I looked at another piece of media, maybe that came out a few years after your book, it was like 150 members. And then now I saw on your website 250 members. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's even more than that now. What, after your book came out, I wonder, did you get a big bump? And also, what, what was there backlash after your book came out? How did, what, what was your life like after the book came out? Um, the membership jumped tremendously after the book came out, partly because the book came out, but partly because it was just the moment in time when people were starting to really pay attention Mm -hmm. to, um, eating whole food, knowing where their food came from. And so our local membership, I think nearly doubled that coming year. Um, but what also has happened is that there are many more farms around us now who are doing similar models and raising, you know, whole food using similar methods. Um, so let's see, last year, last fall, we changed our business model a little bit. We opened, um, an on-farm retail store. Um, and we also started, uh, taking shares to members in New York city. So we're not just local anymore. Um, we have expanded the model to include people in New York, which has been interesting and exciting and, Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, Good, I think. Was there a concern that if you're bringing food to people in New York, that that there's a dis, more of a disconnect there, and they're not coming, they don't know you as well? I don't know what the effects of that would be, but we had we had a lot of hesitation about um, starting to distribute the share in New York. The main one was just that our, you know, our goal had always been to feed our neighbors and to to leave our local community. Felt to me. Um, like a difficult shift philosophically. But we also saw that in order to support all of the farms that are in our little tiny region now, we needed to open up the market and make it bigger so that all of us um, could survive and hopefully thrive. And we thought that was a bigger good than, you know, staying perfectly local. As far as the CD members connecting to the share, 
I feel like, you know, they're awesome members. They're, I feel most of them are really connected, even if they haven't been to the farm and they're always welcome to the farm. So I think we'll see a lot of visits this summer. Yeah. Um, but we write a, a weekly note and take pictures and, you know, make sure that they know who the farmers are and, um, get a pretty good grasp of what's going on. Yeah. Um, and they're eager for it. You know, they, I think a lot of them are really eager for that connection. When you, you just said a moment ago that you, you, you went to the city to kind of support the, your, your own farm and also the farms around you. Does that mean that it's quite, it's not adversarial between you and the other farms? Like, how do you view them? How do you get along with them? Um, it's very cooperative. And I think we've all worked really hard to keep it that way. You know, it's easy to feel uh, nervous when, you know, somebody who used to work for you goes two miles down the road and starts a farm doing the same thing. But we also recognize that, number one, that's part of our mission, that we're really happy to see the growth of small and midnight and mid-sized farms in our little economic backwater of the world, number one. And number two, um, it really can be beneficial to all of us if we cooperate and work together. For example, um, you know, several of the farms that have been started by people who used to work for us are also draft horse powered. So suddenly we have equipment that can be shared. We have skills that can be shared. And, um, our neighbor down the road has, um, a stallion who is a particular breed called a Suffolk that's really rare and really awesome for, for farm walk work. So we have this new, um, small farm infrastructure that's growing up in a place that didn't have it when we first moved there. Um, we also can, you know, if we're short on potatoes, we can trade somebody else carrots for them. Right. Um, it's a very nice little agricultural economy that we have going on. Yeah. And, and along with that, um, you're not, your uh, your organization, nonprofit organization, what is it called? It's called um, the Essex Farm Institute. Right. And so is that kind of also related to sort of education feeling like, okay, now we're kind of second generation farmer or we're the older generation of farmers um, how can we kind of support this movement? And maybe, maybe did it happen organically? Was it kind of like, hey, all these people are coming to us and we're training them and then they're going off and starting their own farms. Maybe we should make a more organized program around this. That's exactly, yeah. exactly what happened. We realized that there was much more demand for training than was being offered um, in the kind of farming that we were doing. Um, and we also recognized that the training that we were doing was very um, – incomplete. You know, we were throwing people into the field and saying, you need to fence this field so that the cows don't get out. But what we really need to do is, you know, have a much more um, modular and stepwise training program where we can actually, you know, do a lot of work in the field, but also do um, some, you know, work in a classroom and, and really understand the underpinnings of the of the work that we're doing in the field. Um, Kristen, thanks so much for coming by the little podcast studio at BMC. Thanks so much for having me. This is great. I appreciate it. Thanks so much to Kristen for uh, for talking to me. Uh, thanks to my co-host, Zohar Gitlis. Thanks to Ben Strader and Harriet Barlow, as always. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you.